My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, we have a great guest in the studio. Prior to becoming an author, J.T. Patton worked for the government intelligence and military special operations community. He's a subject matter expert authority on Iran and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the CODS Force, irregular and unconventional warfare strategies in counterterrorism, intelligence collection, and social network disruption. He has a degree in foreign languages from Illinois State University, a master's in strategic intelligence from the American Military University, postgraduate degree in counterterrorism from the University of St. Andrews Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, and many accredited certifications in intelligence analysts, cyber forensics and counterintelligence, mobile device tracing and financial crimes investigation. He even submits to the NSA, the CIA, and the DIA. He currently works for a Fortune 500 cybersecurity consulting practice leader and is venturing into more dark story works. Please welcome into the studio my guest, J.T. Patton. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, DJ. Thanks for having me. Boy, if we if we cover half of that stuff, it's going to be a real long show. Yeah, I hope so. I hope we get to cover a lot of it. So we're going to save the books for last because I think that's kind of where you're at in life right now. And I want to kind of take those on a ride, talk about all the different series that you have going on and then what you have for the future. And the way I kind of always start this out is I talk about early life and I ask guys, what brought you into this? Because this is not a normal thing that people think about going into. Of course, they see James Bond movies. They see all kinds of movies and and spy works and things like that. But it's not a lot that you hear people say, I want to do intelligence work when I get older. So yep. in early life, was that a family thing? Was it just something you came up with? Or how did that kind of work itself out? Yeah, actually, it was, it was really to the contrary, because uh, my family wanted me to go as far away from it as possible. Um, I had my, my father's uh, cousin was World War II uh, Marine in the islands, um, and, and he, had a, he had a pretty tough time. He did make it home, uh, but struggled for the rest of his life. Uh, my dad was a Vietnam vet, and uh, he, was, uh, he was drafted, uh, so he really hadn't planned on going to the military, nor did he particularly enjoy it while he was out in Vietnam. Um, so they had different plans for me. Um, I was supposed to, I, I wanted to get into law enforcement. I wanted to be in the military, uh, wanted to go the intelligence route and, you know, short of forbidding it, um, they really pushed me on the educational route, uh, international business. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, they did, um, I, I was part of a, a junior rifle team for the police department in the South suburbs of Chicago and, uh, and spent a lot of my, you know, at least a couple of days a week, uh, shooting and, and learning, you know, talking with the officers. It was kind of a, you know, take you under the wing program. And uh, I think even then uh, they had tried to push me away from the military. I, I shot with a, uh, a Marine sniper um, who was also a Vietnam vet. And he said, you know, maybe, maybe look at the FBI, but go to college, get the business degree. 
And so it seemed like every place that I turned, somebody was telling me that I needed to go away. Uh, my dad and mom were both, you know, heavy into music and to the arts. So I had, you know, I had to be in band and, uh, and God, I hated it. And, uh, and so even going into college, once we finally arrived at where I, you know, could go, I basically had three picks because I wanted to do, uh, ROTC. Uh, my dad wanted me to do the international business. I wanted to do a study abroad. Uh, this is in the late eighties. And so we didn't have computers to really do the searching. So I'd go to the guidance counselor and they told me, okay, well, you've got three places that you can go. Uh, Illinois State University, Ohio State University, or Princeton. Um, I never heard back from Princeton. So that left me too. Um, <laughs> and, and my my dad and, and mom took me to Ohio State. I loved it. Great. This is where I want to go. We had the chat with the financial aid person. And they said, I mean, at the time, I'm just kind of pulling out of my head. But I remember it was something like it would be like $12,000 a year. And my dad said, well, it's, it's settled. You're going to Illinois State with in-state tuition. Um, what he didn't realize, though, was that I, I could apply to ROTC and, uh, and get the scholarship also. And so I loaded up my extra credits and, uh, and signed up for ROTC also. And, and that's where I got my first foray into the military Ranger Challenge team and, and kind of, you know, licked my chops a little bit and got a taste of, uh, of what I wanted to do and, uh, you know, I, I can go into a story about that too, but uh, that also ended up being a, a bit of a disaster. And I think it, it pretty much uh, became apparent as to why it wasn't meant for me. Well, it, it's interesting that you say that about the Ranger challenge and stuff, because a lot in your book, when you use your main character, Sean, uh, when yeah. people talk to him, a lot of times I notice they call him an Intel weenie and things like that. And so, when I, when I hear you talk about that, that it wasn't due to, you know, that, that that wasn't meant to be the Ranger and stuff like that, your guy still has a hard edge to him. How much of you is kind of in that character? Because you were Intel. We know that you've been some places and done some things. How much of you is that character? I would say there's um, the heart is me in there. Uh, the aspirations is me in there. Some of my experiences are in there. Uh, the operational components, no, that's that's predominantly fictional. Um, despite the fact that you know he and I may have walked in the same hallways, um, worked for the same teams and things like that. But but no, I mean that's a it's a it, it's supposed to be an everyday man protagonist. So that despite the fact that he's working for the agency, he's working for JSOC, He's still just supposed to be a regular guy. It's not supposed to be that superhero guy um, that you want to root for, but can't really realistically aspire to be, you know, that that best of the best Delta guy, the best of the best seal. That's not how it was. It was supposed to be he's a regular guy. Maybe there's aspects of me where he's a screw up. I mean, I put in there a guy, Sergeant Major Jones. Uh, I think I used his name. Um, that was my guy in ROTC that said, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty much a screw up. Um, I didn't put in all of the stories of, you know, the FTXs and things that I screwed up on, but by and large, that introduction to the career day, um, to the CIA was pretty factual, um, you know, on up to going to the Palmer house and things like that back in the day. So I think there's a lot of aspects of it. Um, uh, there's a part in the first, so Shadow Masters, which is the first book that I wrote, 
and because I was going through all the pre-publication review, I needed to make sure that it was all above books uh, to the intelligence community, DOD. I couldn't figure out how to get it to a publisher and then still meet all the requirements of the intelligence community and DOD. Uh, I, I talked to uh, Dalton Fury about it beforehand. I, I had known Tom beforehand. I talked to uh, Jerry Boykin about it, and it seemed as though there are a lot of guys that had done it wrong, uh, or the publishers took control over it, released the books without their consent. Um, in some cases, got guys PNG'd from the community or from their units. So I needed to be very careful because I was still working within the IC. So when Shadow Masters was first released, um, that was um, that was done on my own. So it was uh, independently published. Um, it's recently been re-released as a series through a publisher and it's gone through all the clearings, but there's a part that was cut out and, and it was a part that was part of my childhood uh, growing up with a friend of mine whose dad was a Green Beret um, who, had, who had died in Vietnam. And uh, I remember still at his birthday when he received the box that had the beret in it. Um, and I remember that it had the little bronze statue. Um, I was the only friend at the party at the time. And I remember that as being just such an awe moment. And I remembered his dad taking the beret and his dad was a bit of a hippie, um, loved the Grateful Dead, loved uh, Moody Blues and stuff. I mean, he was definitely on the opposite side. So you've got, you know, his real father um, wanting to join up as fast as he could, uh, you know, getting within... Uh, special forces. Then you got the other guy. I'm not saying he would be a draft dodger or anything like that, but that's like that persona that you might've gotten from him. Right. I remember him putting on the beret and just kind of flipping it, you know, uh, very flippantly, literally uh, just kind of out, uh, you know, onto the bed and stuff. And I, I just remembered something inside of me thinking, man, you know, I, this guy, this guy died because of bad Intel, you know, so if these are the best of the best, who are the guys watching them? Um, so that transcended into the book Shadow Masters, the first edition, because it was it was really a part of who I was at the time, even as a kid, and how it was it was a catalyst. Where, yes, I did want that glamour of being special forces, but later on, as I realized that maybe that wasn't going to be the best path for me, it was definitely then that intel route of not necessarily being that spy out and about, you know, in, in France and Europe and, you know, some of the glamour areas, but looking to protect more of the special mission unit guys, um, because if they were the best, well, who is the best that was going to look out for them? So I think that's kind of the message that permeates most of those Sean Havens black op books, because Sean Havens is that guy. There was just that catalyst moment, um, some moments with his dad, uh, some reckonings and things like that. But I think by and large, you know, the guy's not just patriotic, but just kind of that uh, wanted to be a guardian angel to other people. Well, and and how you mention that is when you say to gather that intel. I mean, but that is, if you really think about it, that's the lifeblood for the field. With with bad intel leads bad results. I mean, garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so it's a very serious job. But do you think that in thinking that way of going into it, that you wanted to be the best of the best instead of just trying to kind of learn it. Do you think you put a lot of pressure on yourself to that maybe made things a little more difficult than they needed to be? I, I don't know that it ended up um, being too difficult because again, I think it was still 
a bit of a dreamer stage of it, you know, fantasizing some of those things, but it wasn't so much that reality where I had to achieve myself. I had to find myself in that pedestal. Um, it was just, that was going to be a journey. I had no idea how I was going to get there. I don't think I could find the path again. Um, but it just, every door that opened, I took the one that just seemed right. And it just kind of brought things deeper and deeper in and, and, uh, until I, you know, kind of looked around and said, holy crap, how, how did I even get here? Well, I want to establish some differences because I think a lot of the people um, that, that watch the show, listen to the show, they know about special forces and things like that. But this is kind of a different road that we're delving down tonight. Um, yeah. and, and in your books and, and what people see, they see it in the news and things like that. There's so many different intelligence agencies like you and I talked about. You have the NSA, CIA, DIA. Uh, and I think people, one, get confused on who's doing what, what kind of mission they're doing. And then some people may look at it as what do we need all of those intelligence agencies for? Because aren't they all doing the same thing, gathering intelligence? So if you would, will you break down for the listeners like what each one is doing and what kind of its job mission is? Sure. And I, I don't know that I'll be able to, you know, fully nail current missions and things like that of and course get into all of it but uh, but for the basics look you've got um you've got the intelligence uh, community um who is largely focused on external um global issues so the cia is going to collect against political affairs uh, they are going to look at some of the military aspects of things um you're going to look at individuals, you know, et cetera, especially as, as the counterterrorism element uh, uh, drew forward on the NSA side, it's going to be more of the technology, you know, whether it was the signals, the cryptology. Now we, we see it a lot more with just computer computers uh, networking, um, you know, what, what's called the eavesdropping aspect of it. So a human developing the sources within the CIA with case officers and, um, NSA doing a lot more of that from uh, from from a remote you know type capabilities electronically. Uh, with the DIA, you know, comes the intelligence arm of it to support specific order of battle, um, more of that mission tactical aspects of things. Uh, there's also the counterintelligence aspect of it, but then of course every single uh, service elements also got their own aspects of that too, whether it's Army, Navy, Marines, you know, what have you. So. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of redundancies, um, politics involving, you know, some of the other. But, you know, ultimately, anybody that's got the mission, whether the output is supposed to be the intelligence or you're supposed to use the intelligence to inform your missions, um, there's kind of a duality to that. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because the next thing that I wanted to talk about, and I think it's on a lot of people's mind, when we talk about differences in intelligence gathering and dissemination before and after 9-11. Now, I think we can both agree without me being ever a part of that, I think there's a huge difference in how it's gathered and disseminated between those two. Uh, and then after we talk about that, I want to talk about that the U.S. is being caught. And this is in law enforcement. This is in um, intelligence works and things like that where people aren't sharing the information with who they need to share it with. And for lack of a better term, it gets us caught with our pants down or whatever, and we're, we're making up a lot of areas. So first, let's talk about the differences in intelligence gathering and dissemination before and after 9-11. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so 
honestly, I used to teach this at American Military University as an adjunct, but it's still, it's, it's, it's a little bit unclear in that, you know, we had different missions, we had different objectives at any point in time. So obviously before the Cold War, uh, even before 9-11, it just kind of looked at who our adversaries were. And largely before 9-11, I'm not going to say always, because in the 70s, you still had a lot of the hijacking aspects of things. But by and large, you would look at it more from the view of a nation state. And I think when we got into post 9-11, then it looked at the nation state support of individuals and individual groups. So it brought it down a little bit from that macro to the micro, um, but then having to understand a lot of the networks, rat line supply chains that would allow cooperation, marriages of convenience between nation states. I think that we saw that a lot with, you know, the typical one you hear about is Iran, um, you know, supporting Hezbollah, Hamas. Um, what do they actually have their fingers in? Are they propping up certain other governments? Um, I, I think it just, you know, to me, at least in my involvement, it, it, it was more about the less of the strategic aspects of, of the future. And I think that we also got ourselves more into the, you know, tactical operational view, which, which in many cases, some may argue might've left us with some blind spots also, you know, today that we're getting back to the Russia and China. Uh, aspects of stuff. So I, I think it's come full circle. Um, but I think that we've we've gotten a pretty good now now view of both the the micro and the macro. So I, I, I don't feel like we're, we've forgotten anything. Um, but I think it's just a matter of priority budgets. And, you know, of course, the politicians tend to drive a lot of that stuff too for a little bit of a wag to the dog type of element. So in speaking about that, before or after, and I, I speak during like Cold War compared to Global War on Terror. Um, if you can give it, which one is an easier way to intelligence gather? Like, because I'm thinking Cold War, less enemies that we're actually watching and gathering intelligence on. Then when we get to the Global War on Terror, there's so many sects and so many different splinter groups and sleeper cells and all that kind of stuff that we have to look into and, and kind of chase every lead down. Is it easier during the cold war era? Is it easier now because of more technology? How does that kind of play itself out? Good question. Um, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess you're used, you know, you do what you're used to. And so while I think if it was cold war, you know, I mentioned the old school um, intelligence community where it's embassy parties, cocktails, um, um, introductions to, you know, bigwigs, business uh, and, and influence uh, folks in, in certain countries. Um, you could get an understanding then of where money is going, where power and influence is, uh, even from the, uh, the military side. You know, if you can recruit somebody who's a little disenfranchised, a general, uh, you know, somebody in the in the military, um, get an understanding of the order of battle, the number of tanks, a number of ships, uh, any new types of um, uh, innovations that they have in weaponry and things like that. I mean, I think you just kind of knew who you could target and how you had to target them. Um, then as you shift to more of the GWAT 
aspect of things. It got a little bit more, you know, micro networked, as I mentioned, um, hidden communities or dark communities, uh, dark networks. Um, so you had to penetrate it from a different aspect. Now, which is easier or harder? Uh, can you take a suit that was doing embassy part, uh, parties and, and have them effectively infiltrate a terrorist group? You know, no, that's, that's probably not going to happen. You know, the Yale graduate, you know, personified as that. Um, but by the same token, can you take a knuckle dragger from Guat and put them in the embassy parties and have them have a Renaissance man type conversation about art, music, um, economies, et cetera. So I think you had to, you know, it's, you don't have a hammer or a tool for, you know, every single problem. Um, and so I think that in some cases you're going to use a hammer in other cases, you're going to use a screwdriver and whichever is the one that, you know, um, that's the one that you'll usually lead with. So I, I think that each one has different challenges and ways around things, but honestly, I think we had to learn um, a little bit more on that micro side uh, again, especially since we, uh, we expanded that so rapidly. Uh, but similarly, as we're shifting back to the larger side, how do we now do the same thing that we were doing before? But now, you know, you kind of get into the area that I was involved with for a while, even with personas and, um, and cover stories and cover platforms and things like that. The time has changed so greatly just in the last, 30 years of even, even the last 15 years of being able to capture somebody's story through social media and understanding really who they are. And if they don't have a whole background of individuals and history and things like that, that you're seeing on social media, that's obviously going to draw up a red flag. That was about the time that I was getting out, uh, where, you know, we were coupled with the, the challenge of identity management. Well, now you think of identity management and cybersecurity as, you know, who's got access to the systems. We are talking true identities and how you manage somebody in social media or with um, just the, the power now with the internet and being able to search somebody up and seeing how valid they actually are. It doesn't take too much to see if that right person is who they are. And so now you're having to do things a lot more in, um, you know, your, your true identity. And so that makes things a little bit harder too. I think we're actually having to shift a little bit more towards that Chinese model uh, where you don't put James Bond in there, but that you're just looking at a whole number of intelligence aspects, open source, et cetera, to get your, uh, your whole aperture on something. I think you'll agree, though, the problem that you have with that kind of intelligence gathering and we see it in law enforcement is uh, these days you can be anybody you want to be. I mean, there's reality shows on Netflix that that the whole point of it is to pretend to be someone else and see if people can pick out whether you're being who you are. So I, I feel like when you talk about that and and having to do the gathering that way. I feel like that would lead down a lot of dead ends um, because like I said, you can be whoever you want. You can trace them down, but it's going to take a lot more work because everything is so artificial in cyberspace. Yeah, no, it, that is true. Um, but I think if you're going, if you're saying that you're a business person, um, you know, if you're trying to set up a, a business or some relationships overseas, or you've got some political cloud and you're being introduced as that, it doesn't take long for somebody to find out who you actually are, who your family is. I mean, you also become a little bit more vulnerable 
Um, so those things are exposed. And even with the social media stuff, I mean, it doesn't take too long. And I don't think to a trained eye, I think that, you know, my kids and their teens are able to, to spot fakes uh, on social media pretty quickly. Um, so again, I think it kind of plays to both sides. So let's go back to the question about being kind of caught with our pants down with, with, with not sharing intelligence when we needed to share intelligence or when it could have helped us out. A lot of people talk about 9-11 being one of those main moments of, uh, and we can even go back to Pearl Harbor where, you know, messages were sent out, they were kind of overlooked or maybe passed by or whatever. How do we move past that point in getting our information from each other? One, and, and I'll speak strictly from a law enforcement perspective on this, everybody wants to be in charge. So you have a lot of sectioning out and pieing out of what information goes out. You have one person, maybe two persons uh, in an organization that have all the information. And then each other piece that's going to take part in that operation has what they're doing, but not necessarily the overall picture. Do we ever move past that? And if we do, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, mean, that's a national question that, folks are wrestling with that uh, a lot smarter than I am. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I, I know that our ability to look through data from a lot of disparate sources easier and the fact that more people have access to some of that information to make their decisions. I think the biggest challenge isn't necessarily getting the intel. I think almost in all cases, you'll find that the intel was there. Um, you know, we talk about mitigating surprise by indicators and then warning. And if you look at all the series of indicators and then you can paint that into, you know, distilling it into analysis and informing that information with other sources and, and information, you can paint the right picture for somebody. Now, the key is whether or not that person that you're presenting the information to is looking for a bias or has an agenda. I think in I think even if you look at Pearl Harbor historically, the information was there, but somebody didn't necessarily want to believe that Um, in the cases of Afghanistan. I mean, gosh, how many, you know, at the time there was talk, well, this isn't going to be a long war. Well, anybody that was a student of any history knows that from if we look at Alexander the Great on up to the Germans or to the Germans, to the Russians, we know that that's going to be a long war if you don't have a specific plan to get in, get out and have certain objectives. So was that intelligence there that brought us in and said, well, gosh, why are we having such a hard time with all of these tribes? Um, Why are we having such a hard time with all the the landscape? Why are we having this, um, you know, shifting the mindset into going to our belief system versus theirs, you know, politically, socially, you know, religiously, what what have you? Um, There's no surprise there. So it's the, the powers that be. And I think one of the greatest challenges that I had uh, in, in my work was typically I might know the answer. I might try to take it to those people. And whether I'm talking to a SOCOM J2, uh, whether I'm talking to a um, you know, TSOC Intel commander or something like that, you know, I can present what I can present. But if they're unwilling to believe it, that's another thing. There was a specific terrorist 
that they were tracking in the Middle East, and we knew their whereabouts in Venezuela. Well, that's complete opposite side of where people were looking at them. But we knew where they were. We knew that they were on a helicopter. We knew that they had their identification. We had the sources on their ground. But they didn't want to believe that. So there are more fatalities and more incidents as a result of that individual later on. But they didn't want to act on it, not because they didn't have the intel, but because they had the mindset that they couldn't get out of to believe that actually the intel guys were the right ones. So when you say that, that the intel guys are the right ones, it seems like that's a a very simple answer. Of course the intel guys are the right ones. That's their whole job is to figure this out. And when you talk about being in Venezuela and not being where they're supposed to be, sometimes they're working a different mission than we think they're working because they have a different game plan than we know that they do. Um, and so I, I guess talking to these different kinds of people, because from what I'm understanding from out your career, you're talking to all different kinds. You're talking to military yep. government officials, all different kinds. Uh, and you have to approach each situation differently because everyone's going to accept information differently. Other than the Venezuela one, did you ever know without saying specific names or anything, when you had to go tell someone something that you were going to have a very hard time getting your message across to them. Yeah. I had a lot of talks about Soleimani. Um, I had a lot of talks about trafficking, uh, a lot of difficult times talking about counterintelligence, um, in Southeast Asia. So yeah, I would say that pretty much every single day, I had an uphill battle. Um, I think that was extremely true with the personas that we would develop and, and the packages that we would put together for um, short stay ops, long stay ops of, of what that platform was going to look like, that somebody's going to go as, you know, their cover, um, you know, for action or, um, you know, ju just for their day to day of status and, and people would argue with us. You know, no, they want to do a little bit more like this because they have some knowledge in this and they think that's going to be good. Um, there is one particular incident that I remember somebody wanted to cross from Iraq to Iran. And they, they had this great idea because they had a source in a date factory. And so they're going to take the date truck and they were going to move that in to Iran. And we asked, well, what kind of dates are they? And they're like, who the fuck cares about what kind of dates are? Dates are dates. Well, uh, you know what? It wasn't. Um, so what they were importing was uh, food process type dates uh, that were actually exported from Iran. And the, the table dates that they would have needed to have brought into Iran would have been a much different quality. So already there is just a difference in the cultural understanding and the business of how you're going to take something just because it was there and take it as a commodity and bring it back in. That made absolutely no sense. So it was already going to have a lot more scrutiny. Um, you know, when we described it, you still had guys saying, well, what the, what, you know, what are we supposed to do? Dates are dates. And, but, but again, you could say, even after we explained it, they still didn't understand that that wasn't the right way to do it. And so we gave them some other options as well. That was just going to be a little bit too complex. We might have to take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and we need to do this sooner than later. So they ended up making their own decision, um, but they ended up also aborting that mission before they can go across the border because they realized that there was going to be a little bit more um, 
uh, scrutiny, just as we had said. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where after a while you just kind of throw up your hands and you're like, you're going to do what you're going to do. But I think where you then argue a lot more vehemently is when you know that there are going to be guys' lives uh, in jeopardy or other people um, because they're just going to ignore those decisions and and still go with somebody else that really doesn't necessarily understand the context by which they're going in. And they think that they've had the proper rigor going through, um, you know, beating on those cover legends and stories and uh, the, the, uh, the ops, um, you know, plans and stuff like that before they go. So at what time do you say, do you kind of let them go and make their own decisions into it? Does, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. When do you trust um, them to do, you, you know what I'm saying? Even though you tell them everything, all right, you're on the ground, you know. You know, our, our job ultimately, I mean, it's, look, we are not the decision maker. Our job is to inform the decision makers. And so all we can do is give them and present them in the context that they've asked us what we should do, shouldn't do from our perspective. But ultimately, they're the ones that are supposed to weigh it. Now, what they're supposed to do is weigh it based on the risk factors, but they don't usually go through the process of an analytical rigor afterwards of weighing those options. I think it usually ends up being a lot more gut feel and asking a bunch of other guys what their gut feel is. And that's how they make a lot of the decisions, at least in the areas that I was in. But, you know, the, the, the more elite, the mission unit, the more receptive they are. So I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but sometimes, you know, when you talk about the ground fodder, you know, being just big green, um, usually those are the ones that are a little bit more resistant when you move up tier two, tier one, is a gradual reduction in resistance. And that's one of the reasons that I enjoyed working with um, with JSOC elements a lot more because you had a higher caliber of individual that really wanted to sit down and go through everything with you ad nauseum. And uh, and I I really appreciated that. And so whether it was, you know, army-based, navy-based, usually when you got to that caliber, um, there, there there was a little bit more uh, astuteness and, and willingness to embrace some of the analytics. Well, in, in saying that whenever you move up, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation that you said that, can you really take a knuckle dragger, put them in an embassy? And then can you take an embassy guy, put them on the ground? The only thing that I would kind of, that I was thinking about that whole time was when you talk about those tier one guys, those Delta guys, those uh, seal team six guys, they are kind of uh, renaissance men in their own. If you look into what they do in their spare time, I interview a lot of those guys on the show and, and they're big readers and know about art and music and woodworking and all these different kinds of things. Do you think it's ever possible to bring those guys over into the fold? I think, I think it's, it's not a, it's not a, a rule or a law. I think it's isolated individuals. I, there's some, there's a couple of individuals that are really, really, um, astute. And, uh, and I'm even thinking of a couple of the guests that, that you've had on there that I've, that I've known. But if you listen to the communication style, you can fake it, but I can tell you right now that within 30 seconds, I can tell somebody who's grown up in the military, uh, ranks. Um, there's just a difference in 
and just that demeanor, the communication, how they're carrying themselves. Um, it's different and they're, they're tells. And uh, I think that's one of the things also that I kind of call out in a lot of shadow masters is how Sean Havens can pick out a lot of those nuances. Um, you've got some guys that think that they're just walking around in a souk, but he can see that they're still wearing their Oakleys. Um, you can see just, you know, the various tattoos that they have, uh, their body jewelry, things of that nature. I mean, there's just things that people know, you know, just do that they don't recognize that they're and um, I, I, so I think from that standpoint, yes, they can be trained, but I think it's going to be, um, it's just going to be a little bit different person. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I know what you're talking about in the book, especially when they have a meeting at a certain place and, and the guy presents himself as kind of that suit that you're talking about, but he knows immediately that uh, this guy came from somewhere else, that he's not raised in that kind of environment. In talking about those things, can we talk about um, talking to humans to gather intelligence and, and whatever you want to call it, interrogations, interviews, things like that? I'm sure you've been a part of those things where you're, you know, uh, debriefing someone or you're getting as much information. There's been a lot of different talk about the proper ways to interrogate, the proper ways to interview. Um when we talk about those kind of things, what have you found is the best way in an interview to build that rapport, to get that person to tell you what you need them to tell and understand your side of it before they even look at their own? Yeah, again, um, every situation is different. And, and I think you're talking about, do you have the luxury of time? Do you really understand that individual? Have you known that individual? Um, I, I think, I can't remember the movie, um, with, with Sam Jackson where he's the interrogator. I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but you know, they, uh, they, basic. they've got a bomb. No, it's, um, I, shit, I can't remember, but he's, they call him in because his bomb's supposed to go off. And so he's willing to do anything, cut off people's fingers, um, threaten to kill a kid uh, of the person. So, but it came down to, you know, what are what extent are we willing to go to to get information and so when you think when you're threatening somebody's child and, and willing to go through and kill them um you know are you going to get a little bit more truth out of that and, and and if the time is essence you know is that way i suspect in some cases yes it is um i'll tell you that one of my my good friends his name is john kiriaku um he served time uh, but he was a cia case officer had been an analyst um, he's the one that blew the whistle against waterboarding. Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about him in a little bit. <laughs> so, so John, um, I mean, I, I love John to death and, and John has a way with people and is one of those true Renaissance men. where I would say he is amongst some others are, are very capable of creating that rapport, creating that empathy because their empathy in many cases is true. They understand it's not necessarily a black and white of this guy is evil. This guy is, is good. Now, again, I, I understand there's going to be some re, uh, listeners out there that are going to say, well, yeah, come on, you can't say that a, uh, an extremist, you know, is actually any good. Um, what, what are they're doing to their women, what they're doing to other people. You haven't seen this. Yeah, I have seen that. So I get it. But I also understand that they've grown up in that culture 
and they've grown up in those worlds and that's part of survival. So until you can get to the mindset of what that adversary is or that individual is that you're trying to gather intelligence from, I still don't believe that you're able to get it as effectively. Um, but again, I'm not in those, those situations. So of the, of the situations that I have been in, I found that it works in rapport. I know that there's going to be some tier one guys that have said, no, that is absolutely not going to work. You have to use, you know, force. That's what they understand. And in those situations, yeah, I believe it is. So I think in those cases, what you just have to have is a skilled individual who's also mature enough to read the situation and recognize once again, what tools in my toolbox am I going to use? Am I going to use a, am I going to use food? Am I going to use a hammer? Am I going to use a gun? Or am I going to use a, a warm blanket and the promise of, uh, of safety uh, for somebody's family? So it just, it really depends on the situation, but that's why we can't necessarily go into certain situations without really understanding the enemy and how we perceive their, their, you know, true nature of being an enemy in black, white, and gray and those degrees and understand the different factions within the different political sides within the families and things like that. If you don't know that knowing it, you don't know what levers to pull. And I'll speak from what I do in a law enforcement interview, but the things that you've mentioned there, the different avenues that you can take in order to build that rapport. What I've found uh, very early on in law enforcement is, is when you, there's a couple things that will stop you dead in your tracks. One, if you give in to everything right away, in an interview. Yep. Hey, I need water. I need a cigarette. I need to go to the bathroom. I need to do this because you give them the false sense that they are running the interview. Um, and, and you give them power in that situation, which I, I believe is a very bad thing to do in an interview because it, they, people need to understand why you are there, why they are there. Another thing that I found out is promising stuff that you can't come through on. Um, and, and because then you look like you're not in charge if you promise something and you can't come through on it, but building rapport, especially in law enforcement, because these people that you're interviewing have no reason to tell you anything. And I'm thinking yep. it's the same thing when you're talking about the global war on terror or getting intelligence on a target that might be at, they have no reason to give that to you. You have to give them a reason. You would agree with that to give it to you. That brings me all saying all of that to this. How do you know the information? Because sometimes you can do everything right, get a person to talk, build that rapport, do everything, and the information is shit. It's bad information. It's just one indicator, though. So that's, that's, and that's my, that's, that's, again, now I'm locked into my mindset in that those, you, you may have, and you may only have one data source but you have to trust it as your one source. Um, so, you know, whether you're using from military st or a, a Leo standpoint, I've been through Stan Walters, I've been through the read techniques and whatnot. One of the best programs that we ever built was in Chicago. Um, I could probably say it. So it was, it, it was years back. Um, it was kind of after about midpoint of Guat, maybe 2012, 14. And a lot of the reservists were coming back to CPD and saying, hey, there's things that we were doing in Iraq that was working that we should incorporate here. 
So I was part of a group that was collected from TISWIG, a DOD entity, um, CPD, uh, sheriffs, marshals in Chicago. And what we did was in the juvenile program, we created a human capability for all of those that had been in juvie were taken out and then had to come back as parolees to talk to their sponsor or their individual, you know, once a week, every couple of weeks. And we set up a collection program. And what, what worked in that was these guys knew they had to come in and everybody in their community knew they had to come in, do their spiel. It was private and then they get out, but we were setting it up as an Intel program. And so for those kids that wanted to change their community, they had a safe place to go. And we could take not just one kid that may have been a little shit uh, or one kid that really was passionate about telling the truth, but we could look at those and say, all right, we've asked the same question about 10 different kids that came in on this day. We can take that and extrapolate a general consensus of what that intel is. And that might be a little bit more actionable or meaningful because we're not looking at it as individuals. Now, ironically, that program was, uh, was, um, dissolved. Why? Because the cops were talking about it in the communities to their uh, sources. So here you've got something that's actually helping, but yet we were, we got in our own way on this because a little bit of, you know, greed in some senses of, of, you know, source management and who their guy is. And in some cases, oh, we had a couple of bad cops, I'm sure. Um, but again, programs like that, you know, do you just trust that one source that you've got? Probably not if it's about something big, but if you can get your arms around a number of different sources and have a way that you can kind of refine that a little bit or give a little bit more credence to it, it's ideal. But again, it's kind of the crown jewel of Intel collection to have something like that. In most cases, you're dealing with a whole lot less and a whole lot less time and, and a lot of other factors that's usually working against you. So I'm not making it that simple for sure. Can we talk about working informants a little bit? Uh, I know it from my side of the house. I don't know if you have necessarily worked in foremans or people that are set up maybe, I'm not going to say on your payroll, but people that are coming to you regularly for whatever reason they may have, like you just talked about, whether they want to really tell the truth, whether they don't want to be in trouble, whether they want to disassociate with something. Um, in your career, have you worked in formants where you have a steady stream of information, whether that be overseas, back here in the United States, uh, from one, two, three persons uh, where you're getting steady streams of information? No, not so much. Um, I, I wasn't the case officer. Um, there are times when I would have sources that I'd be running. But by and large, what I would do is usually quick marriages of convenience. I can get from one person to the next person to the next person to the next, usually by a series of ruses, um, especially early on in Guat, where we were able to do things by computer, um, speaking some of the languages, understanding the cultures, the various nuances. We could do things in uh, covert communications in Iran. Um, we could do things in Afghanistan. Um, I did a lot of these things with corporations around the world that had data that I needed for various things that they wouldn't have thought had dual purpose. So it was more of, I knew who this guy was, or I could find this contact, come up with a bullshit excuse as to why I wanted that information and hit about five or six people like them and, or find out if they actually had the data. And if I knew that they had the data or where they had that data or information, then I could 
pass that information to somebody else who was um, enabled by the government to be able to procure that information from whatever needs possible. Did that ever blow up in your face? Making up those quick marriages of convenience and, and making up, as you call them, bullshit stories and stuff. Did it ever blow up in your face doing that? A lot of times, but um, more often than not, I think most people are going to give, uh, they're going to give an initial eye of skepticism anyway. Um, but being, you know, an American in, in some of those cases um, and what I was covered under and my job um, made it pretty plausible and legitimate. So if there was something, I mean, I can tell the temperature when something is going a little bit south. So you can kind of back off. And if they don't, and if they're not going to give you something there, well, just so that it doesn't escalate into something bigger, usually you throw a few other bullshit tasks that you really had no information on. But just to keep your primary objective of collection uh, more benign, you throw all those things out too. And, and usually, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm a fairly agreeable person on the phone or can be and so, or, or in person. And I think in those cases, I, I don't think there's any reason. I know that there is no way that half of those people could fathom where that information was actually going to go to and what it was going to be used for. What do you think is the biggest problem right now? Domestic terrorism, foreign terrorism, or kind of an amalgamation of both of those? I think right now, um, the biggest thing that is causing disruption, I mean, I guess there's two, so I'll, I'll hit it in two things. Domestically, um, civil disagreements and the gaslighting of things is definitely a, a, a threat. Um, whether it's people associating into groups, information not necessarily being trusted. Um, you can say it's media, you can say it's individuals, what have you. The fact that we are so fractured internally over things, um, I think that is a huge threat to our ability to unite over common purposes. Um, that's, that's a challenge because if a greater challenge is happening, it becomes a lot more of us versus them. And right now, as we're having supply chain issues, we're facing another escalation of, you know, pandemic surges and new variants and stuff like that. And then the us of them of who's getting vaccinated, who's not, are you getting boosters? Is that going to last only six weeks? Well, if it does, then do we even waste our time getting that? In the meantime, you get more people affected, yada, yada. Um, I think the social decline and the disruption to businesses is a massive impact to our economy right now and our stability. I think that there are other foreign nations and or individuals and or even foreign companies who are able to further manipulate that or to capitalize on that. I suspect I would say that, you know, from a global threat um, to me, some of the Chinese aspects of commerce, trade secret theft, um, information, um, or intellectual property, uh, you know, use and stuff. I, I think that's massive. Um, 
again, if we could unite on certain things, I think they're, they're the ways to, to mitigate those. So again, but it's, it's just to get, you know, that commonality of purpose. So we can present the Intel on that, but if you've got different, um, political parties with different views, you know, that's, that's, that's going to change how they're going to go about things. And I think that if, as, if our representatives, similarly, I'm not going to get political here, uh, but I think it's a, a thing that many people can relate to. I think by not having some term limits, um, some people can make a lot of money off of the decisions that they're making politically. And you can make a huge amount of capital by your political involvement in making these choices, knowing about them, being able to invest, um, that I think that's that's a, a threat too, because are we really doing what's needed to be done because it has to be done, or are we doing it because it might benefit a select few or some individuals? And I, I think that's problematic. And I think they talk about that a lot, where these people come into office and they leave multi multi millionaires with five and six houses and things like that, that didn't come from serving the people. And I don't get political on the show either, but I understand exactly what you're saying. The problem with that is, is I think these foreign entities and even some domestically see that as an in absolutely see that as an in in order to manipulate not only markets, but political turmoil. There's a lot of different things that they can do. And if you can get enough people going in one direction, you can have a huge problem on your hands. And I think that's the big thing that that is um, domestically now going on in the United States um, yeah. is just making people believe what you need them to believe to to move your story or your agenda forward. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I did threat finance for years, tracking it, whether it was terrorists or politicians or bankers, businessmen, what have you, you can follow the money anywhere. But there has to be that will to track that down and to have some some rules, laws with teeth that will be exacted when those those individuals are found out. Um, but people have to draw a line in the sand. You know, are we willing to do this or are we not? And if we're not, all right, well, let's just not bitch about it anymore. That's just the way it is. And let's be okay with corruption. I laugh a lot about, you know, being from Chicago. And so, yeah, if you want to give me a handout or something, uh, pay me off, you know, sure. I'll take it. I'm from Chicago, but you know, I'm, I'm kidding. But, but we talk <laughs> about that of, of fraud and bribery and stuff like it's such a horrible thing. And if somebody's doing it, you know, white collar crime, it's, it's, it's nasty, but if we're okaying it by those making decisions for us, then, uh, and let's just make it okay. And let's let's just say that that's part of our new ethos. Uh, we're okay with that. That yeah. takes away a lot of crime if we do that. I will just tell you <laughs> that right now. That takes away a ton of crime. Yeah. So if we could, I want to take you back to 2006. I read an article about you where they described you, and I want to get this correct, how they described you. Um, no comment. One spy novel writer. You were part of a team that had three former CIA officers, one former uh, Secret Service, one former IRS agent, uh, one um, guy that sold polo shirts as a side job, and then you as a spy novel writer. Yeah. They had a couple sources, I think, for that article. Um that were gracious because they didn't want to throw a few of us under the bus. So they just kind of 
put some other things, but I, I can, it's been long enough where I can, I can share with you. So, um, there was a big four company that I worked for and, uh, we had an intelligence component. Um, it was for a lot of our global acquisitions, you know, M and a stuff. Um, we were, we were a team of collectors, uh, from the intelligence community and, uh, we were not working for the intelligence community. Uh, so I do want to you know, cover that. Um, but a lot of X's and, um, we collected within the law. Um, and, uh, we ran assets, you know, that were commercial individuals and we got information. And so in this one particular article, there was an acquisition that this company did and we were, uh, or the team was, I should say, very successful in, in doing it. Well, we sent a couple of collectors out to where that business meeting was being held. Um, they went into the boardroom afterwards at a hotel and swept the room for the collateral that was left behind. And uh, we were able to make a lot of analytical inferences and in many cases um, had the facts. Okay. Uh, we could talk them up, you know, at the bars, what have you. So. It, okay. It I want to point out some other things. This <laughs> company that we're talking about was making 300 million in revenue. The reason this whole thing happened was because they wanted to bump it up to a billion dollars a year. That was why they kind of set these collectors into place. Uh, and, and I love that you say we went into the boardroom, we got the collateral. These people also waited in bathrooms for hours, hiding in stalls, just listening to people talk. And what was interesting about the article to me was how they point out that just how much information and how, I mean, you know, they've said it before, loose lips sink ships, how much people talk out in the open, not even being aware of their surroundings. And it ended up being this company's downfall. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Um, and, and again, is this, is this espionage? Is it analysis with collection bits? I, you know, I can argue all day uh, with it, but I, I can say that, you know, we operated within the law. Um, I did it before. Was it before or after? I guess it was before I was with uh, Oracle for a while. I was um, on the intelligence. I was kind of a standalone Intel guy for Oracle's CEO office for Larry Ellison and a couple departments. Um, we pretty much single-handedly ensured that Microsoft never united an enterprise uh, resource platform um, with all of their disparate things by, you know, you just knew what levers to pull to create some doubt. There was something that IBM was going to do. All I had to do even back then was look at some satellite pictures of what the commercially of what that parking lot looked like one year where there was a development look at some permits that were pulled, uh, get an idea there from open source information, talk to a few people. We knew exactly what they were going to do, how big it was going to be, et cetera. So, you know, that, um, that type of thing happened. As a matter of fact, we acquired PeopleSoft. I was part of that collection team there too. Um, DOJ had said not to destroy any information. I never did. Um, one of the executives said to DOJ, Hey, this is a guy that destroyed information. I was able to show it. And, uh, and so, but I knew where the loyalties were at that point in time. So I walked across the street, literally, actually I flew over to New York, went to work for SAP competitor. I walked in with an SAP bag 
He said, well, how did, you know, in the interview, and they said, well, how did you get that bag? I said, I was at your trade show or your, your customer only show in uh, New Orleans. And um, I said, I probably had about five dinners a day for three days, went to all of your events and, uh, you know, just talked to your people to know what was going on. Got everything from pricing to customers and, and what have you. Never did I ask anybody to do anything illegally, but just part of that trade craft of understanding how to not steal information, but elicitation of putting something out there, being able to collect on that and being able to turn that into analysis. And I think that's where a lot of people in the you know whole competitive intelligence is espionage. Don't get the fact that you can get a lot of innocuous sound bites from people just by putting yourself in those environments, to your point, just by being in a lobby or something. But it's the analysis and the distillation of that, you know, the noise from what is really good and applying it to what a, an objective is. That's how you're creating intelligence. Other than that, you're just getting information. And I'll stick to that. I, and, and no, no, no. And, and, and it's a needed thing. You see it everywhere. I mean, you see in the big corporations, I remember because my degree is in international business um, from Oklahoma State. Um, and when you take these, um, capstone classes at the end and you, you look at all these companies, all the major companies have CIA, NSA, people working for them, people that can in, gather intelligence because it's necessary. You're either growing or dying. The question that I would pose to you though, is when does it cross that line? Is it right when you ask for someone to do something that's against the law is there a gray line? Is there, what is it that, that, that takes it from one thing to another? I think you're looking at a few different things. Okay. I think one, one, you're looking at legal. And I will tell you that in almost every single one of those companies that I did any of that type of work for, we were attached to the legal department in some way or another. Uh, and in some cases, any of our funding actually came from legal. So we were operating within a law. Two, you've got the company's mission and your company's culture. That's what their business ethics are. Do they find that that is something that's acceptable to them in society and business? And if that's okay with them, then that means that's okay with them. Okay. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's what every other business does. You might find a very conservative view on something saying, we will not do that. If you put a price list on our front porch, we will destroy it. We will not look at it. Um, you know, it just depends on your business ethics there. And I think the third one is then those individuals that are willing to conduct that information and what their uh, point of view is on it, whether they feel like that's something that crosses their moral compass line or not. And I think in every single case of, of ours, there were decisions that had to be made of what's a little bit crossing the line. You know, if we saw there was a briefcase left behind, did we steal the briefcase? No, never. If there was a piece of paper that was left or if there was trash that was in the, that um, that trash can, would that be taken? Yeah, absolutely. That was discarded. Somebody didn't need it anymore. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a judgment call where we said that person consciously left the briefcase so that somebody else could take it. There was a lot of bags that were left on the backs of, of, uh, of uh, bar stools and stuff like that and chairs in those lounges. Did we take those? Never. Um, phones. People left those all the time when they'd go to the bathroom. How many times could we have taken? We didn't do it, but we talked to them about that stuff. So again, crossing the line, that's one thing. Now, when we were operating internationally, especially if it was in 
counter espionage or when we were on foreign collection missions, if somebody left that table uh, with a phone on it, was that taken? Absolutely. Um, a bag left someplace or even under what they thought was their care, could we take it? Absolutely. But what's the difference? We're working for the U.S. government. Then I would ask this question and keep in mind, I'm playing devil's advocate here because yeah. I, I know people want to know these kind of answers. <laughs> when you say, what's the difference? I'm just working for, uh, I'm working for the U S government. I know I get it. What is the difference though? And, and that's not. The, oh. that's where you, you look at, you read shadow masters. Yep. Did it give you some cringy moments? <laughs> uh, quite a few. Okay. So in some of those cases, there was people making decisions autonomously. Some mm -hmm. were operating on behalf of a government with explicit orders. Some were working off of implicit orders. Some of them were just going off of what they thought was an implicit mission. And I think that's one of the things that I struggled with toward the end of my career in the mission type space of support was I didn't know who was telling us or asking us what to do. And I didn't know the reason, didn't always have to know the reason, but I think you had so many layers of implication. And in these cases where we were dealing with unacknowledged waived programs, which meant there was no oversight in those special access um, uh, programs, we just didn't know. And you didn't always know who you were with and what their objectives were on something. And if they had an implied or inherent bias to something and they're the one passing down the orders, who knows if it was intelligence driven or a specific policy driven objective or a mission driven objective, or if it was something that was an ax to grind or something, we just didn't know. And I think that makes some of the best espionage movies and some of the best espionage books when you're put in harm's way doing something that is is pretty ostentatious on some uh, line, but you don't know who your master is, and that's scary. And so that's that's the crux of the book and the and the writings that I do, which was about every man guy put in situations where you're so excited to get there, and once you're there and you realize you're not at SOCOM, you're not at JSOC, you're not at CIA, you are someplace further down the line and you no longer know what that is. And that's where some of the characters that I've got dealing with is like, holy shit, you're actually involved in an organization that we thought was defunct since 1942. And that's, that's what I think makes them fun. But I think that also makes them uh, beyond a traditional thriller, action thriller. It actually puts it into if you look at the definition of the dread, it almost puts it into military thriller horror because of the fact that there's so much stuff going on, so much brutality of things that is directed without knowing what's going on. It's a really horrific thing that 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 can be had if that power is uh, misused. Let me ask one more question about your work, and then we're going to get into the books. When you come from government work, like you said, and you go into this private entity, a lot of people have trouble crossing over that threshold because things are done a lot the same, but a lot of things are different too. Do you have trouble when you come across that line of, because like you said, 
when you're working for the government and you take a phone, that's one thing. When you're working for a company and you take a phone, it's completely different. Do you have any trouble um, just kind of clearing things up in your head as you're making that transition? I did. And, uh, and I made that decision, which was to get out of it. So now I'm in cybersecurity, no lines. I'm, I'm, I'm the defender and I'm advising those companies how to work against those threats. Um, there for a number of years were some gray areas of who we were working for, how we were doing it and, and what was the intent. And I don't think that there's that point when you're dealing with a global ecosystem that it's any more about government and military versus commerce because one is joined and economies are joined. And so you understand that in many of these cases that we are doing acts of war, whether you like it or not, or whether you want to believe it, it has a lot to do with economies and economics. And a lot of the politics are based on economics because of the fact that there's personal gain and political gain that can be had by those. So you can no longer take those away, especially if you look globally, many of those corporations are nation state corporations. One of the things I loved working uh, the Iran uh, area was the fact that Banyads, uh, the IRGC Quds Force, they controlled the, the conglomerates of businesses. So you didn't have a separation between, you know, that church and state, business and state. They were one and the same. Same thing with China, same thing with Russia. So when I'm dealing with it on the corporate side of things, but I'm dealing with an entity that I know is foreign, I have less problem with it. There was one company that I worked for that had acquired uh, an Israeli company. Um, actually, I think I've, I've got this in the, the book as well. Um, you know, they thought they were a bunch of Israeli businessmen, but what they didn't recognize is that they were actually from a technical espionage arm. And this is a true story. And so this company was brought in to a company that I was with. I wasn't chartered to collect against that company, that, that group, because that was, we owned it. But I could see that they were taking inside information, American information, and passing it back to their country. I was doing the same, but I was giving it back to the Americans. And I was doing it with some other foreign entities, uh, uh, the, the collecting against them that we had, you know, so we bring it in. So I was doing the same thing, but this was my team. So it came down to don't fuck with the home team because this is, yeah, maybe there's some gray areas that we're crossing, but we're doing it for the home team. So, um, so we rolled up that organization and, and had to get the feds involved. And there may have been some slippages of information because our company may not have necessarily wanted that exposure, but it was the right thing to do. Um, but again, if we would have presented that intel, what would they have done with it? They may not have known what to do with it, or that may not have been the decision. So a few of us made that decision for them. Was it the right thing to do? I mean, dealing with taxpayers' dollars, shareholders' dollars, but in this instance, we knew what our team wanted us to do. And that's that's what we did because we were mission-minded. Yes or no answer. If you want to go further on it, you can. Okay. Does this line get blurred further the more we go into the future? Sure. 
Sure. Do we ever go back? I'm not a an, I'm not a, a real religious person, but I think that our baseline, because we don't have a grounding source by which we put ethics and morality on our on our sleeves, and, and we say this is as Americans who we are, uh, or as a world a society, this is who we are. Um, Religion grounded a lot of that, I think, for many Americans for a number of years because of the fear of lack of salvation. Uh, it's a sin. I think the further that we get away from something that we fear, whether it is judge and jury of our citizens, judge and jury of our God, judge and jury of whatever, I think that we, if we don't have something that's going to ground us to something more of a baseline of what we should believe in, what is right and wrong. Yeah, I, I think that that'll straight. I think over the last four years, um, things got a little bit out, out of hand, uh, eight years where I think maybe people harbored feelings of race, um, of differences, but it felt like over the last six to eight years, people were able to vocalize those a little bit more than they had in the past. Whether that was still in their hearts or not, I don't know. But I know that, you know, it, it affected my friends, family members and things. And so I could see a changing of community uh, with some of those things. And, and, and it, you know, it hurts. Uh, but I also see then where, you know, in like civil wars, if those would ever happen, you know, again, you could see how you could take up arms against a neighbor pretty easily. Um, and I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago as an idealist, I would have thought, how could the North and South ever have taken up arms against brothers, cousins, you know, neighbors? How, how, how can you do that? Can't you understand? We're all one. I, I think you can see it pretty easily. And I think those type of things scare me as we get a little bit further from, from a baseline of acceptance and commonality of what we're going to say, this is how we should act. I think that's a very good answer to that. Let's move on to the books and what you're doing with life now, because these books are absolutely, absolutely amazing books. Shadow Masters was awesome. You sent it to me, and I absolutely loved it. It was spectacular. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, the Sean Haven story is, is one, I text you as I was reading it, and I would give yeah. you like little, um, I can't believe some of the shit that you put in this book. I was blown away reading some of it. Not only how graphic it was, but you pulled no punches telling the story. I, you know, I guess, I guess sometimes if you, what is it? Method acting where, where an actor just kind of goes pretty native. Um, this is the world that I created of, of these fictional characters. Uh, you know, in some cases, um, instilled by truth. Uh, but where I see some of that darkness, where I saw some of my own fears, that's the world. And I, I painted it. It sounds quirky, but I painted what they wanted me to paint. And I think some of it is maybe some questions of what is the brutality that we're willing to go through? Uh, what are we willing to do? What are the lines that we're willing to cross? What are the the shadows that we see and do not see that are actually 
the levers uh, behind society. So there's some of that conspiracy theory too. Um, but it, you know, it's not, I don't think overly hokey. Um, and I don't think it's, and it's definitely, I try not to be preachy. It's just a pretty dark story that I think from, I'm an avid reader too. And I will say I have never read a true glimpse into the world of true black operations where people really say is the sexy stuff that they want to get to. And they think that is Delta. They think that it's SEAL Team 6. They think it's SAD. It is not. And when you go a few layers down, this is the type of thing that people can get a peek into. And it's brutal because you are, as you see in, in even the second book, Prime Charge was one of the hardest books I ever had to read because there's just some elements of the brutality and savagery of people, uh, what they can do to one another and not think twice about it. Uh, it's not over. I hope it's not overly gratuitous because that wasn't the intent, but it was just what that is. And I understand people can say, oh, I don't need to see that because I actually know. Well, no, you know what? No, you don't know. And so until you can see from scene after scene after scene what some of these people have to go through and what they're living in, um, then I think you can only understand it. So it's not for the squeamish, but for those readers that say, I, boy, I really wanted to do black ops. And I get some kids that reach out to me and say, how do I get in there? I'm like, man, that's the last thing you want to do. So if you want to get into that space, these are some of the only books that I think you'll see. And again, they're fantastic in the sense that it's, it's fiction. And there's some things that, yes, you're going to be like, there's no way that would ever happen. And that's true also, but it's as close as I can take you and still get them approved by DOD and the IC. I want to go through what each of the series is about, but I, I had a question before that. I yeah. heard you say in an interview that you wrote the first book almost proving that you were the smartest guy in the room. Um, does outsmarting your audience ever have its place in writing these kinds of stories? That sounds pretty narcissistic. So I said that it was like the smartest guy in the room. You said that you tried to write it proving that you, you know more than the okay. audience knows that you're the yeah. smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll take you back just a, a little bit on it. Um, one of the reasons that I started writing was there was a, there was a, a couple authors that were reaching out to a friend of mine wanted some extra help, uh, making things a little bit more authentic. And the intent, you know, was to just give them some nuggets after a while, you know, and so my friend would ask me because he said, you know, what can you give us? that's not going to be something that can't be disclosed. I'm thinking, why, you know, these writers are making millions of dollars and they don't even have the information. We're the guys that have this information. Why aren't we writing? So we actually made a bet. I ended up writing the first book, which was Shadow Masters, because yes, it was a bit of an, I don't know if it's ego thing, but it was, yeah, I'm sure it was ego thing because I did want to win. I wanted to prove to them, I know more than you do. So people are going to buy more of my books because this is the real deal inside story. Where I was wrong was the fact that these authors who were asking us for information were asking for nuggets, but in truth, they're damn good writers. And so I've, I've written five novels. I say that they're, that it's now only in my fifth novel that I feel like they're 
kind of to the level of quality writing that some of these best writers had in their first or second book. So it's been a long path. It's been a long journey to realize that it, really, I think the more important thing was the writing than it was the, the, the insider baseball. And, and so I, I think that, yeah, shadow masters, maybe even prime charge a little bit over the top. I mean, it definitely drew the line to where, you know, it could still get approved. Um, but I never wanted to expose secrets. I, I, I guess it was, I just wanted to prove, you know, you guys on the outside don't know what it's like on the inside. We're going to prove it and show everybody, but you know, what did I make on it? Maybe less than $15,000. So these, you know, are, are these are authentic books, but I can hardly pay the editor because for the, for the first bit, nobody was paying for them because what? I couldn't. Was there ever a point where you were like, son of a bitch, I thought there was going to be millions rolling in. Dude, every day, every day. Well, let me, well, let me ask you something real quick, just to interrupt. I don't want to interrupt you, but, but I, I have a question because it says shadow masters reloaded. Yeah. Did you go back in and change it from the original? Did you have trouble with the original? Was it not well accepted? What, what was it that made it do reloaded? Because in reading this book, I don't see a problem. No. So the biggest thing at the time, as I said, was I, I, I did it wrong. I thought I, cause I knew nothing about publishing. And you know, when I reached out to those guys who were helping, they're like, yeah, no dude, I'm not going to help you. Um, the only guy that was willing to help me was um, Dalton Fury. And, but even then I was already kind of past that point. And so what, what happens is, you know, when you write a manuscript like this, usually, you know, you solicit an agent and then you try to, then they sell it to a publisher. As I mentioned, I, I was, I didn't know what to do because I didn't know who I could show it to before I got the approval. I, it takes forever to get these approvals. And once I got it, then they still had to be edited, but nobody could edit it until it was fully approved. So they couldn't change it. Yada, yada. And then you take another couple of years and what publisher wants to do that. So I self-published it in short. I did the same thing. And then once I got the, my arms around shadow masters and I was doing prime charge, then I said, now I got it figured out. I know how to work it with PRB, the professional review board, uh, publication review board. Uh, now I can do it. So, all right, let's get the agent and let's publish this. Well, they're like, dude, you're in the middle of a series. We, we don't, we don't buy series that are already started. If you want to write something new, we can write something new. So I finished prime charge Kensington. There was an editor, um, Gary Goldstein, who, who he and I had dinner. He spoke. He goes, I'll, I'll do your books. He goes, I like the books, but he goes, I want to write something different. And that's when we came up with the Task Force Orange series because nobody had been written about Task Force Orange, uh, intelligence support activity, um, which again became very problematic for me to write um, later on. So I wrote those two books then in the series and then you know, thought that would then launch a lot of these other books. Um, but what I liked about it was working for an actual publisher who was doing the cover art, um, doing the editing, doing everything else, doing the, the marketing and stuff. They just wanted their authors to write. Um, that was what I was missing in the other two. So when I pushed those out, it was kind of like, Hey, friends and family and people on Facebook, here's my book I just wrote, and maybe you're interested. I talked to a lot of military guys and said, hey, you guys might like this. It's kind of up your alley, something that you might, you know, 
like a lot because there's a ton of jargon in there, a ton of acronyms. So it's it was really designed for the insider to read it. Um, the other two uh, on the Task Force Orange, there's a lot of inside stuff, but it's a little bit more commercialized. So that was the intent. Once I finished those, then I was like, I really kind of like this writing thing and I'd like to continue it on. But I feel like I've got three books out there. Well, actually, I had the two. So I said, I didn't, I need to finish my third, which was Presidential Retreat, which is what brings all of these books together into the world. So if you go into Buried in Black and Presence of Evil, Sean Havens is part of those, kind of like John Clark is to Jack Ryan series. So the tie in book was Presidential Retreat. So I had to finish that. Once I finished that, then I talked to a smaller independent publisher, said, look, I want to get these things out there. I'd like to get them edited one more time just for the, the, you know, the sake of the eye, the marketing and stuff. He and I forged a partnership. So that's why Reloaded was released. Prime Charge is going to get released. And same thing with Presidential Retreat. So the stories won't change much. I mean, I mean, the stories won't change at all. Just parts of them will just so it's written better. So I can feel a little bit more about them because I intend to keep writing and I hate for people to say, oh, I'm going to start with prime charge or presidential retreat and say, oh, that's utter shit. Like I can't write it at all. Well, that's five books in, you know, so I think I've gotten a little bit better. Um, so I want to make sure that they're, they demonstrate the fact that, okay, if you want to read a thriller book that I can, you know, I'm not as good as the Brad Taylor's, Brad Thor's, Mark Graney, by any means. I, I highly respect those guys and, and, and they're great and good friends. Um, but I don't want to be too far because I think I can tell the same story uh, of, of, a, of kind of a unique type. But I, but I want to demonstrate that I'm at least, I could be in the same room without getting laughed out. The question that comes to my mind, you, you speak about Dalton Fury a lot. Dalton Fury to me was a... Uh, a true to form writer when he wrote killing bin Laden uh, or kill bin Laden. Um, was it kill bin? Yeah. Kill bin Laden. Uh, he's telling a true story. So are you telling us that at some point you might do a true story? No, never, never, um, never. Okay. You heard it here. You've never said that anywhere else, right? Nope. So if you I do it so. right here is where you said it. I can do it. Okay. It'll never happen. All right. I'll hey, I'll believe I, you. If you say to believe you, I'll believe you. I, I think the the you know, and that was one of the things that my agent, once I did get one, and uh and he's a well known agent in, in the in the book space, he did say that I should write my uh nonfiction. And and I even a good friend of mine's Jack Murphy and um he said the same thing. You know, if you just get the autobiography out there, he goes, it's going to blow people away. It'll be along the lines Jack of the economic hitman. So it's, it's always been out there that yes, putting that out there, telling my story is how other people are going to see that. And then buy these books. That's not my story to tell because mm -hmm. it's, it's, I'm owned by somebody else or was owned by someone in time. People opened me up to bring me into those folds and ultimately some of those platforms are still operating and to draw any potential um illumination into those spaces is is just not the right thing to do so i'd rather this be a cool awesome hobby 
And every now and then someone gets a book in my family from a stocking gift, you know, whether they want it or not. And that's, that's the extent of it. I probably had to buy it myself. <laughs> but if, if, if the reason that I'm not a successful writer is because I can't put myself on a TV show, you know, um, and, and talk about the real details of it, that's okay. Because I was just part of one of those silent soldiers, but, you know, on the geeky side of that, that parallel. All right, so let's tell the people about these books because you sent me Shadow Masters and Buried in Black. I haven't got to Buried in Black yet because I was burning through Shadow Masters. Um, Let's talk about each series, what they're about, and then if you can, kind of give a breakdown synopsis of each book in the series. Okay. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. So Shadow Masters, again, every every man guy who's out on a mission but family first. Uh, what happens, you know, when, when, when something goes awry with that, it's not your, your typical, you know, got to wipe out your family. Now the guy goes crazy on vengeance. Uh, there's a lot more to it. I would also say these are multi-layered because you've got the conspiracy aspect of it. The people that he trusts and who he's been raised by and such, um, can draw into question. So it's just kind of a constant guessing game, constant cat and mouse. It's a little bit more of the espionage type type side prime charge. I wanted to prove that I could write a more true military thriller. So it's got a little bit more action to it. They go to Thailand, they go to Burma. Um, the time that I was writing it, I was working with uh, General David Grange, Colonel Tim Heineman. Tim Heineman does a lot of work in um, in Burma. And uh, I was doing some counter uh, hind work for him at the time and, and talking about those things. So, you know, over a period of a few months, we had every breakfast, lunch and dinner together. So uh, there, you'll find that there's a lot of community individuals wrapped into prime charge um, who are, you know, plank holders, fixtures, even though we don't say their real names. And uh, it's kind of my homage to a lot of the military guys. And, and it shows also where Sean Haven wants to be that guy but he's still going to kind of fall short. Presidential retreat. I was in Martha's Vineyard with my family and was with a, my mother-in-law couldn't uh, walk around. So we took this, this bus charter bus uh, private with our family. This guy told us everything about Martha's Vineyard, where the secret service stayed, where the president stayed. He showed me where the, what the badges were that he had in his car uh, or placards that he could get into the, 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 um, uh, the motorcades and stuff to transport, you know, people. He showed me everything that he had in there. And unbeknownst to him, I took pictures of every single thing. And I was telling my wife, because she's <laughs> looking at it, she's like, holy shit, you're taking notes on this. And she's like, you got an idea for a book, don't you? I'm like, yes, I do. Uh, so this is a how to kill a president um, in <laughs> Martha's Vineyard based on the inside information that I didn't elicit, but that was freely given to me while I was on Martha's Vineyard. Um, it's also then the tie-in to where we meet Drake Wolf, who is the TFO um, operator that is in Buried in Black. Buried in Black, little different flair because it focuses not only on, it, it doesn't focus on the mission set of Task Force Orange, but more of what an individual who is groomed to be in that since birth after a tragic accident, um, how somebody could be not necessarily manipulated, but built into that 
kind of ultimate type warrior that people see in a lot of other books, but it shows how fallible he can be and how if PTSD is working, uh, narcotics dependencies and things like that is really going to jack him up. And so in this whole thing, he's looking to complete the missions, but it's showing how to get to that ultimate warrior who has seen everything and fought in every battle, uh, he's battle wearied and he's damaged and he's still going to press on, but he's going to make a lot of mistakes and needs that guiding hand. And that's where Sean Havens comes in. Presence of evil um, takes us back to Chicago, uh, my hometown. And, uh, and we, 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 we blow the shit out of the city uh, during the St. Patrick's Day parade. So, um, you know, like I said, fun reads, they give you some different views into some now defunct intelligence agencies. Um, good pacing, I think, with the thriller military things that you would you would anticipate. Heavy military jargon, heavy, heavy acronym, very dark, not one for your kids that are 14 to read that like some of these other, you know, uh, great writers out there. But uh, this is this is kind of close hold ones. And I'd say this is if you're wanting that hardcore black ops uh, experience, um, it's it's going to it's going to get you as close as you're going to be able to get to reading something like that. But you'll definitely feel a little squeamish and, and kind of want to take a shower afterwards and keep you guessing as to how much of this stuff actually really happens. How does that go, DJ? Is that? I think that's uh, I think that's pretty good. You're not kidding when you say it gets dark in some of these. Um, they get very dark. Let's talk about the future with you, though, because there's some stuff that kind of threw me off whenever I was looking at, <laughs> at your next stuff that's getting ready to come out. And it really didn't make sense, so I want you to kind of explain it. So let's talk about Whispers of a Stranger. Okay, so I, I you know, some people get put in Facebook timeout. Uh, DOD and CIA and NSA uh, are the groups that I have to submit my works to. And the, they, they really didn't like the TFO books and in, in such a way that uh, the oversight now is is pretty complex for me to be able to get them in, get them approved in a timely manner. And so I've got to figure out how I'm going to address these next books, um, knowing that I've got that oversight and what I want to do. So in the meantime, I started writing something else and I tried to hone my writing craft. And I, I realized that I've got a penchant for more of that dark side. So I wanted to try my hand at kind of a, a military-esque horror um, but then telling a story about something that I was feeling inside about just some of the evil that exists within us as a society. And, uh, and so whispers of a stranger is going to be kind of my first attempt at a psychological suspense thriller. Um, a little bit of a slash horror, you know, maybe a little Stephen King, um, and a little Clive Barker in there because I, I, I do get a little dark and sometimes a little bit brutal. So I, I want to do that because if I take out the guns, I take out the stuff that I know from the you know military and intelligence community, I, I want to see if I could actually stand as a writer. So um, just about wrapping that up and we'll see if anybody takes it. And then I'm guessing you've got another one that you saw probably too. So purple. So uh, another one that I, you know, we were driving along and my wife was like, why do people paint those trees purple? I think we we're going through North Carolina or I don't remember. I think it's probably North Carolina. And, uh, 
I'm like, you don't understand that that's, you know, the no trespassing sign. And my kids were listening and they're like, who would ever know that you can paint a post purple and that that means no trespassing. And I thought to myself, most people probably wouldn't know that. So what if you actually were trespassing in an area that was purple and you didn't know better and, uh, and what could happen? So again, just until I, I, I needed to keep a little distance, a little bit of time. And, uh, so I figured, let me, let me work on my writing. And when I come back to finish the, um, Drake Wolf and Sean Haven series, I will hopefully emerge as a, a little bit better writer and, um, and I can still bring that same darkness and maybe learn a few tricks. So this purple, does it have like a, I don't know if you know it, but a wrong turn feel? It's, I, I don't want to give too much away because I think it's a pretty clever idea and I, and I, I hate for someone to swipe it before I can write it. Uh, but yeah, but I think still it's going to be a, a little bit of that narrative of society and sometimes maybe the people who are wanting to keep other people out may find themselves embroiled in some of the same type of problems that they're hoping to prevent. And so it's a little, you know, I, I think similar to my themes, it's never what you're going to expect it to be. And, uh, and it's going to have a lot of twists. It'll definitely be a surprise ending. I mean, I think I sit on my, on the couch with my wife and we try to guess kind of what the endings are of a lot of the throws shows that we watch. I don't think you're going to guess the ending to these. So if, if you're that type of person that doesn't mind reading a few different plot lines, um, I think you, you might enjoy them. What do you got for the future? Other than those, what else you got planned? I've got kids in college, got to pay the bills and I'm not paying them go. books. So I'm, <laughs> I just, every day I just wake up. I'm like hoping the Russians and the Iranians and Chinese are wrecking havoc with our system. So that keeps me keeps me paying the bills. Uh, no, I, I, I do enjoy, I, I found that, uh, I got into consulting, uh, some years back and I, I just found that now as I've gotten older, um, I like teaching people how to consult, uh, solve problems, um, get creative. I still am threat minded. So I try to look at it from a lot of different angles. And, uh, I think that that's, you know, it's been my vocation for the last few years. Um, I've, I'm still in Chicagoland area. I think I, you know, probably could have still had some career in the IC or, uh, you know, soft support, um, had I moved, but, uh, we, you know, we, this is our home. And so, uh, so I, I kind of made that bed and, uh, and I, I've, I've let, you know, let go of it. And that's for another generation and probably some better solutionists than, than I am now as an old man. Um, so. So I'm okay with that, but I think it, the writing of the books was pretty cathartic for me, I think. And I, I didn't realize it until recently that it was also part of letting go of an identity that I felt I had, because if you're not wearing a uniform and you're not carrying a badge, um, how does anybody know what you did? And as much as we can think it's noble not to tell anybody, I still think that human nature is, you know, when people are asking you what you're doing and you're next to a cardiologist or a dentist or a investment banker, you know, you still, you know, you don't want to be like, I'm an analyst, you know, you still want to tell your story, but you can't. Um, so I, I, I think that was a hard part for me for a long time of how do I tell my story without being able to, um, you know, everybody, I think a little bit of ego burn there. 
Um, but, but I think I've, I've, maybe it's just part of maturity of also recognizing priorities and saying, you know, it's okay to be a dad. It's okay to be a businessman. It's okay to be a mid-list author and, uh, and have a pretty damn good life. Get a chance to meet you. Oh yeah. That everyone looks forward to that. Um, I want to tell everyone where they can find you uh, on Facebook. You're going to be a JT Patton dash author and also JT Patton books, Twitter. They can find you at JT Patton dash author on Instagram. They can find you at JT. This is all lowercase JT Patton books and JT Patton official at both of those. Um, now there's a, a little bit of difference in some of them. You, you post some things and some not in the others, but yeah. it's a good way to get kind of a rounded view of everything you're doing. I'll go down them one more time. If you want to find him on Facebook, JT Patton dash author and JT Patton books on Twitter at JT Patton dash author on Instagram at JT Patton books and JT Patton official. You can also find him at JT Patton books.com. That's everywhere you can find him. I recommend you go to the site. You can look at the books. You can look at his bio. You can see a little more insight into where he came up with the idea for these books. It's been great talking to you. I think this uh, show really put some insight on a world that a lot of people don't know about. Guys, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form, and you can check them out, see the things that we were talking about, actually look at the art cover of all these books, every single one of them that we talked about, and get a look at what JT Patton looks like. That's going to be it for tonight. That's going to be it for the show. That's JT. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We're out of here. Bye. Thanks, brother.